Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Reinhelnik. I'm the professor of Jewish studies and Bible at, and the academic dean at Moody Bible Institute. And this is Moody Radio's Bible study across America. It's where Moody answers your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. If you have a question, all you have to do is give me a call. The phone number, 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. If you like, you can post your question by going to openlineradio.org. There's a link there that says, Ask Michael a Question. Fill out that form, and your question will be added to the mailbag by Tricia, and then she'll bring it up when she comes in later on today. Joining me today is the other Michael of the two Michaels, the co-editor, and he's also a contributor, significant contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary. He's also an adjunct faculty member at Moody Bible Institute, and he is my good friend, Dr. Mike Van Lanningham. Hey, Mike, I'm glad you're here. I'm I'm excited to be here, Michael. I really am. It's always fun to do this with you. I have a great time with you. We, yeah. Well, you know what? The funny thing, people say, well, you guys sound like you like talking about the Bible together. Well, guess what we often talk about when we're not on the radio? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we do talk about, we talk about a lot of stuff, the, but the, we talk about the Bible. And then Michael brings up the Yankees. I mean, I yeah. am not a baseball, I'm baseball's, baseball's just baseball. Boring. You know. Yeah, I know. Anyway. I know. Yeah. Well, what can <laughs> I, this year I've not been talking much about the Yankees here in last place, oh. but let's go on. Anyway, before we get back to the phones, I want to tell you about our current resource because I loved co-editing the Moody Bible Commentary with Mike V. And it was hard. It was long. But I use that commentary all the time. And there are parts that remain especially helpful. Two of those are commentaries on the Psalms and Proverbs. And, you know, we tend to turn to the Psalms for comfort. But the Moody commentary on Psalms is also rich. It explains the Messiah in the Psalms. The Proverbs commentary is terrific. I use it all the time. It was written by our friend David Finkbeiner. And he did a great job with that. So why am I telling you this? When you give a gift of any size to Open Line, we want to say thank you by sending you the excerpted Psalms and Proverbs commentary of the Moody Bible Commentary. It's just a, a little book that you can hold right in your hand. It's not as heavy as the whole commentary. And it's very helpful. And you can check out the meaning of the Psalms and the com- and the Proverbs. If you'd like to give a gift, and we really appreciate it if you do, We'll send you this book. Just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, when you give your gift, ask for Psalms and Proverbs from the Moody Bible Commentary. And we're going to go to the phones right now, uh, talk with Mary in Indianapolis, Indiana, listening on WGNR. Welcome to Open Line, Mary. How can we help you? Hi. I started going to... um a church in the greater Indianapolis area, and they keep talking about a great revival that will break out at the, um, in the end of days. And they just, um, I've never heard that. And I've been in the church my whole life. And so I was just wondering, um, if you know where they're getting that and what your thoughts are about it. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll start with an old Testament passage. Mike V I think is heading for the new Testament, right? Now uh, here's something that I'm going to just set this up a little bit. Uh, I and Mike and I both firmly believe that the church will be removed, raptured, 
before the tribulation begins. Sometime after the rapture, the tribulation will, will begin. And a lot of people see what's going on during the tribulation. They see a lot of believers, and they say, well, the, the believers, the church must go through the tribulation. And my point is always, no, the church is removed, and then a great revival breaks out. And that's why there's so many believers in the tribulation period. And one of the key passages that says that is Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Uh, Here's what it says. I'm turning, you can hear my Bible turning to Joel. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Now, you're going to recognize this because people know it from Acts, but it says, After this, I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the survivors, the Lord calls. This is talking about the day of the Lord, the period of the tribulation that culminates in the return of Jesus. And what is he saying? I'm going to pour out my spirit. People are going to call on the name of the Lord. There's going to be a tremendous revival. I know that uh, this is quoted in Acts 2, but in Acts 2, it's a different kind of, of answer I would give. I would say it's an applicational fulfillment there. In Acts 2, you know, the people are speaking other languages. These amazing things are happening, and they thought the people were drunk. And so Peter says, no, this is a work of the Spirit of God. Uh, you can tell when the Spirit is working because unusual things happen, and he was just making an app, drawing an application from this. But the actual direct fulfillment of this will be in the tribulation period when masses of people will turn to Jesus in the toughest time of their lives because it will be hard, it will be bad, and they will turn to the Lord. And how will they turn? Because he pours out his Spirit. So even as things are getting worse, he's pouring out his Spirit. God will do this, and people will turn to him. Mike, you have a passage? Yeah, two, two passages, briefly. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about, you know, don't be quickly shaken if people say that the day of the Lord has started and you're in the day of the Lord, the great tribulation. He says in verse 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, or the day of the Lord will not be here, unless the apostasy comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So in probably the best understanding of that is in the tribulation, initially, there's a big apostasy. People fall away. But then, as Michael said, um, there, there is a great revival during the tribulation in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, meaning that they're righteous now, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So this is an enormous, innumerable multitude indicating uh, maybe close to the midpoint of the tribulation where there is this sort of revival and tons of people turn to the Lord. Yeah. And I, I, that, that gives a little clue. The, the 12 tribes that are sealed, 
12,000 from each tribe in the passage right before that, right? right? They're servants of God, but we don't know what they're doing. But it appears that they are, based on what we see next, that they are evangelists. And so what we've got is 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams across the globe proclaiming the gospel. And, you know, I always wondered about Billy Graham because when I heard him speak, I'm like, well, okay, that was fine. And then he'd see, the music would start just as I am would play. And he'd say, we'll hold the buses, you know. And, and, and then people would just start coming forward. I'm like, what? What's going on there? How did that happen? Well, it's the Spirit of God. Yeah. It's the, it wasn't his eloquence or his greatness or anything like that. It was the Spirit of God pouring out on people. And that's what's going to happen with these 144,000. The Spirit of God is going to pour out, and there's going to be a massive revival among the nations. Right. It's, it's uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, a lot of people think of the tribulation, it's going to be the, only the worst, and it's going to be really bad. But there's going to be something good, too. There will be a revival, Mary. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Okay. You're, my pleasure. And you keep telling them to keep preaching that, right? But we need a revival now, so we want to pray for that. So, Okay. We're going to talk with Kate in uh, Sterling, Colorado, listening online. Uh, welcome to Open Line, Kate. How can we help you? Thanks for taking my call. Um I have a friend that I met through my business, and I've known him six years, and I keep struggling knowing how to pray for him. Some days I think that he may be saved, and other days I think he isn't because of his lifestyle. The Bible says, by their fruits we shall know them, and his fruits, he's an alcoholic, he's on drugs, and he's a womanizer, and I pray for his... um, for him, because he has a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems. So I pray for him all the time. And the Holy Spirit showed me one day, if I want him to get off drugs and alcohol, I'm going to have to really pray. Only way is through lots of prayer. Mm -hmm. If I get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I'm praying for him. Mm. And so then I start praying for him. Then I see that he's open to take me to church. If I'm I live in Colorado. He's in California. So if I'm there, he would take me to church and and everything support me spiritually. So, so then, so I don't let, know let if me see if I got your not. question. Uh, are you asking if he's? Do I think he's a believer? How do you respond to him? Tell, tell me what you're asking. I'm trying to understand if he's a believer or not, because then I'll know how to pray for him. Okay. Because. I got I it. So can he be a believer with w- with this lifestyle? Okay. Yes. Well, okay. So so he could be. I mean, um, I, we have to be very, very careful about being fruit inspectors. We have to be very careful about that. Um, sin is, even in the best of us, sin is still very strong. And so it's possible that this man might truly trust in Christ as Savior and truly be saved and born again and would die and go to heaven and yet have these sins to which he's yielding. Because, Mary, I'm just going to say, you have sins to which you yield, and I have sins to which I yield. And yet we would say, because of the grace of God, uh, that we are saved. So we, it's, it's very tricky. I've had actually people, when I was in college, people accuse me of not being a Christian because, and, and this is going to put a weird picture in your mind, because I wore 
skin-tight bell-bottom pants, and I had beads and long hair, and I didn't, <laughs> and a Fu Manchu, and I didn't look like I didn't look like a Christian. And people said, "No, oh, he doesn't know Jesus." Well, but I did, and if they'd only known how much I had changed because of Christ, they would never have said that. But I didn't really fit their view. So um, now, obviously, bell bottoms are different than uh, <laughs> alcohol abuse or uh, womanizing or things and like I, that. And I didn't do those things, yeah. but just had in terms of how I looked, you know. Yeah. And so. Oh, we have to be very careful about inspecting fruit in, in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Um, Jesus talks about, you know, false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. And then in verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father uh, who is in heaven will enter. And the, the false prophets are uh, standing before the Lord, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Notice that they are, they believe that because of their good works, Jesus will let them into the kingdom of heaven. The problem is, is that we never get into heaven by good works. And so if the false prophets and the false believers in this passage are ones who do not actually know Christ as Savior, who believe they're trusting in their good works to get into heaven, and they we can recognize. They're false teachers. That's what he's talking about there. The rank-and-file Christian, the person who claims to know Christ but lives in some rather riotous and public sin— I think we have to take their profession at face value, but then we approach them not so much from the standpoint of you need to trust Christ as Savior, but rather you claim to know Christ, but you need to make him Lord of your life, and you are not. And I would approach them on that standpoint. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not saying that we know. I, I think the, one of the most important things is I would go over, make sure that your friend knows the gospel, and... Uh, not only make sure that he knows the gospel, invite him to trust in Jesus if he ever has, to make sure he has, you know, that Jesus died for us and rose again. Do you believe this? Or would you like to believe this? Because maybe he's never even trusted in Jesus. He may be Jesus positive, but doesn't know him. That's what I would encourage you about, Kate. Thanks for your call. We're going to be back in just a moment with more of your questions right here on Open Line with Michael and the two Michaels. Let's just say that. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Michael Rodelix. Joining me today is the other Michael, Michael Van Lanham, Lanningham. And uh, also, we've got the whole team here looking in on the, the windows. I appreciate all of you guys uh, make, reminding me of what I'm supposed to do next. I appreciate that. A couple who listened to Open Line recently contacted me, told me that they had just become kitchen table partners. They, that means they decided to give monthly to Open Line uh, because they believed it was an investment in God's kingdom. And I'm so grateful that they believe that. I'm so grateful. And also that they acted on it. They told me they're praying the Lord would double the number of kitchen table partners in order to double the impact of Open Line. And I am so grateful for this generous couple who have a greater vision than I do about what OpenLine can accomplish, and I appreciate them so much. And if OpenLine is helping you in your walk, maybe you can be the answer to this couple's prayer. Maybe you're the one that will do that. 
you can become a Kitchen Table Partner and give monthly to Open Line. And when you do, every other week, I'll send you a Bible study moment. It's an audio Bible study designed exclusively for our Kitchen Table Partners. Become a Kitchen Table Partner today by calling 888-644-7122 or sign up online at openlineradio.org. And we're going to talk with Nancy in Lake Worth, Florida, listening on WRMB. Welcome to Open Line, Nancy. How can I help you today? Well, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my daughter, Laura Jean, when she was nine years old, she's grown now, uh, she asked me this question, I, and I don't have a clue. If a woman is pregnant and is taken up during the rapture, is the baby born in heaven? I'm going to have Rodelnik answer that question because I, <laughs> I, I'm going to just toss it to him. <laughs> uh, it's a doozy. Well, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord, yeah. and the things which yes. He's revealed belong to us. Yeah. Uh, I, the, uh, well, people ask, what happens if a person has an infant and they're raptured? Will right. the infant be raptured? Uh, I, I, the Bible doesn't say. I, the, I'll tell you no, what the Bible does say. The judge of all the earth will do what's right. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, one of my favorite verses. Yeah. yeah. And so I just absolutely trust him. You know, if I needed to know what happened to babies or, or pre-born babies at, at the rapture, he might have told me, you know, but I don't need to know that. Yeah. And I know your nine-year-old daughter wouldn't be satisfied with that answer, but that's something that we have to learn, that we don't have answers to everything. But we have sufficient information that we can focus our attention on that. And so uh, here's the verse that I made. You know, I wrote that book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. And, of course, uh, one of the only things I see is there's always people who disagree about which are the most important ones. But I get to pick, so I did. (laughs) But anyway, uh, here's the verse that I thought was central to that book. Verse uh, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. I like it that it says yeah. "and our children." That yeah, uh, I yeah. would even tell a child the Bible hasn't told us, but here's what the Bible told us: We need to trust in Jesus, so right. that well, we... she's not a child anymore; she's grown now. Yeah, but that's what I would told her when she, when I was talking to a child. Uh, yeah, you know Matthew eighteen, Jesus says, "Let the little children come unto me," and and clearly He loves them. And it, it seems to me that while God is just and sovereign, He is also loving. And so, uh, one way or another, those those babies and infants are going to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. How precisely we don't know, but they will be Absolutely. because God's Just, love. And you know, there are going to be some obstetricians that are raptured, and we'll see what. <laughs> We'll see what we'll see what happens then. Okay. Well, thanks for your call, okay, Nancy. Thank you so much. Sure, appreciate thanks. it. Uh, we're going to speak with Trisha in Naples, Florida, listening on the Moody Radio app. Welcome to Open Line, Trisha. How can we help you today? Hey, good morning. Um, my question is about divorce, uh, New Testament versus Old Testament, the laws that Moses wrote allowing for a writ of divorce versus what Jesus said in the New Testament, does what Moses said in the Old Testament still stand? 
since Jesus came to fulfill the law and not abolish it? Um, and or and, and what is your biblical view of uh, what allows for divorce in the Bible? Well, I, in the Old Testament, you know, uh, especially Deuteronomy chapter 24 is what I'm thinking of in particular. Moses permits it because of the hardness of their heart. Yeah. Let me just say, he regulates divorce right. in the Old Testament. However, the standard, you know, when when I look at it, uh, it seems to be something immoral. Uh, it's not just, you know, the way rabbinic interpretation became, if a, a husband can send his wife over burning the toast, you know, uh, Rabbi Akiva said that that it could be even if he finds a more attractive woman, he could send his wife away. However, it says if he finds something improper, and Shammai recognized that something improper wasn't just burning the toast, but it was something immoral, that was the only reason. and or That was another rabbi. I think he got it right. So even the Old Testament didn't just have divorce for any reason, okay? And then I'll turn this over to our New Testament expert here. Well, and and then Jesus, I think, um, I don't. It doesn't contradict Moses, no. but I think he tightens up mm-hmm. um, on what Moses says, especially in Matthew chapter nineteen, verse nine, that in the case of immorality, um, that uh, if if a husband or wife, they their spouse is unfaithful, and the hard heartedness could be lack of repentance on the part of the offending spouse. But it could be the hard-heartedness could also be an unwillingness to forgive. Um, then divorce is permitted in that situation. In First Corinthians 7, if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever abandons the believing spouse, then the believer, I believe, is uh, allowed to divorce that person and to remarry. But that's very narrow. It's, it's a believer married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever abandons, probably because now he realizes he's married to a Christian, and he doesn't want to be married to a Christian, and so he leaves him, uh, or she leaves him or her as a result. So um, it then, seems to me that those are, the, those are the only two conditions under which somebody, New Testament-wise, can divorce and remarry without it being being considered wrong by God. Yeah. Now I'm gonna just expand that just a little bit. Uh, I was I've been influenced just so I can blame someone by uh, Wayne Grudem, who recently I, has shifted. I have some a of comment on that. Keep going. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that he says, if the unbeliever leaves, this is just what Michael was talking about. Let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. And the question then becomes, what what cases? And what he is saying, this is just an example right here of someone breaking their vows, abandoning their marriage commitment. In such cases, uh, let him leave. Now, I would say in such cases, if a believer even abandons his vow and abandons his spouse or her spouse, let him or her leave. Uh, you're not bound. If a, you're not responsible, if someone just ditches you, and then the the other thing I would even go if someone breaks their vows uh, to the point where they are physically abusive, in such cases, I think that would be divorce. 
permissible as well. So I, I, I'm, I'm very narrow about what I think, but I would say that there is a broader, this idea of breaking the, the person's marriage vow, you can't stop them from doing that. So that's... And, and I and Michael and I are going to disagree on this. We've never yeah. talked about this, no. I think. And I understand Wayne Grudem's argument. You know, and, um, Grudem says, and he's a very fine uh, living, a New Testament or a, a systematic theologian. He says that the phrase "in such cases" broadens things than just abandonment. So you can have abandonment, but other things. The problem is the "such cases" relates relates to an unbelieving spouse, and so. The unbelieving spouse, if he or she abandons, then divorce and remarriage is permissible. But I would also say other cases involving an unbelieving spouse. So if the unbelieving spouse becomes abusive, becomes uh, addicted to drugs, becomes uh, irresponsible with money, becomes uh, violent, you know, some of these other things, but it's an unbelieving spouse, then there are some things that might be more broadly applicable than just abandonment, but um, because that's the context of his mm-hmm. of his statement. In such cases, he's talking about what happens with an unbeliever. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm just going to say I think that it is in such cases as breaking vows, and yeah. that that could be done by a believer or a non-believer. Uh, Mike and I can disagree about that. It's why I always recommend Tricia that if you have issues of divorce and remarriage, talk to your pastor. He's the best person to talk to. We're coming back with the mailbag in just a moment. Thanks for your call, Tricia. Stay right there, everyone. Uh, we're coming back, and we'll do our best to answer the mailbag in just a moment. My name is Michael Radelnik. Joining me today is Mike Van Lanningham, very special guest. I'm so glad you're here, Mike, even if you disagree with me sometimes. We're still friends. Yeah, we're still friends. Actually, that's fine. Uh, Before Tricia McMillan joins me, uh, I just want to remind everyone about Indianapolis coming up. Uh, And the reason why I'm telling you this, uh, September 23rd, I will be in Indianapolis and I will be leading a conference. We'll do a live open line. And then also uh, there'll be three hours of teaching on the fall feasts of Israel. It's going to be a great day. Lunch will be provided. You can sign up. I think there's a slight fee. But uh, you'll also get a special book, The Fall Feasts of Israel, a Moody Publishers book by Mitch Glazer. Mitch and Zahava Glazer wrote that. And so there's lots of great things coming up. And the reason I didn't want Trish on just yet is because I don't want to embarrass her because this is what I find when I travel. The first question people ask, this is what it is, will Trisha and Eva be there? Because <laughs> they don't want to come see me. They want to come see Trisha and Eva. And so what I'm saying is, yes, Trisha will be there. She's producing that day. And... So indeed will be Eva, and so I don't even know why I'm bothering. To go. So <laughs> you're the say. you're the one who has to be there. Yeah, though. I guess so. But anyway, I'm really glad you're going to be there with us. Me okay. too. Okay. Well, let let us proceed to the mailbag, Tricia. All right. Our first question is from Pam in South Carolina. Listens to WMBI. Oh, oh. Through I, technology. I forgot to say where people can find out more. Oh yeah. Go to go our website, openlineradio.org, and you can see there's a link posted about 
the Indianapolis uh, special open line edition. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Everything's there on yeah. our website. Uh, Pam in South Carolina wants to know, in the Old Testament, does Elijah act in ways that sort of foreshadow Jesus' miracles or even later actions during his second coming? Um, she heard a message that talked about the widow of Zarephath where Elijah restores her son to life. Well, I think Elijah uh, is a very special prophet. Obviously, anyone that gets taken up uh, to heaven in a fiery chariot is not the most normal situation, would no. you say? Uh, in my opinion, the illustration of the widow of Zarephath is uh, really showing that God had concern for Gentiles even in the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, it's not really to foreshadow Jesus' works. Uh, if anything, Elijah is the foreshadow of John the Baptist, uh, and the at the end of days before the return of Jesus, whoever is the witness, it could literally be John, uh, Elijah then, or it could be someone in the power and spirit of Elijah, just like John was. But that's who he foreshadows. Uh, it says in Malachi 4 that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah is going to come and announce the coming of the Lord. So that's what he's going to do. Uh, the two witnesses, when you look at the two witnesses in the tribulation period, one has the power to stop up the stop the heavens from raining. So that reminds us that he's going to be like Elijah, or I don't know if he'll be Elijah, but he'll be like Elijah. And so there, there is a foreshadowing there. Anything you want to? No, you, you've got it. I mean, I, may, I would have made the connection also with John the Baptist. That seems to be the primary thing in the New Testament in the Gospels. Yeah, that's it. You know, is, did, is John Elijah? No, but he's in the power and spirit of Elijah, so he functions just like Elijah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. When we hear messages, our next question is from Sandra in Wisconsin. Um, she's been attending a church for over a month and heard a sermon recently that talked about the Nephilim surviving the flood and then had... Um, a verse quoted out of context, and she wants to know when is it acceptable to uh, tell the staff or let the pastor know you, you disagree and that he's used something out of context incorrectly or has taught something wrong? It, how, how do you handle that when, when there's this teaching happening from a pulpit? Um, and I would say that even goes beyond, you know, you're going to hear a speaker at a conference, or, but, but especially if it's your pastor. How yeah. do you handle that? I would say I would never, ever, ever deal with that. I'm going to ask Michael because he's, he's a lot stricter than I am. But I would say unless it's a repudiation, denial of some core doctrine, I would never, you know, everyone has entitled to their opinion. They can disagree about that. Uh, you can say it's wrong. If you're ever talking with him, you can talk about why you think it's wrong. But I just don't think it's imperative. If he said, now, I don't believe that Jesus really came in the flesh, that he was an apparition. Oh, yeah. That's you got a problem. A, yeah, yeah, you got a problem. If he says, uh, you know, uh, Messiah died for the whole world, and therefore everyone will be saved, and you don't have to trust in Jesus. Time out. Mm-hmm. You know, I might not stay there, but I would definitely go talk to the leadership, okay? So I would limit myself 
to issues of core doctrine, essential teachings. Uh, what would you say? Well, I would piggyback on that. I mean, that's certainly that is certainly the case. Core core teachings. I mean, if you were to say Romans seven is about the experience of a believer. Yeah. Well, there's a lot. Like of people, I say. Like Mike says, and I don't. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, and if he says something like that, or Romans six, or uh, Hebrews six indicates you can lose your salvation. Uh, let's let that go. Um, but if there's a core doctrinal point, he needs to be addressed. If there's a core moral point, yeah, and that he approves as well. If a pastor stands in a pulpit and says it's perfectly okay for people to live together and be sexually intimate before marriage, that needs to be challenged. Exactly. Or if they say homosexuality is perfectly okay. That needs to be challenged. So a, a, a core doctrinal point or a clear moral issue in Scripture, those those should mm-hmm. be confronted lovingly and respectfully but firmly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Otherwise, let it go. Yeah. Let and, it go. Yeah, would, and, especially uh, if it's about the Nephilim, my least important yeah. subject. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So in that instance, um, I'm, I'm going to speak probably to a smaller audience, but maybe not. Um, our, our open line listeners... We have um, are are very well read and well studied. A lot of them know many things about the Bible. Um, when you're sitting in a Sunday school class or um, at a conference or something, and you hear something that you know is wrong, or uh, or you wouldn't have applied it that way, maybe mm-hmm. as you were studying, how do you keep from it becoming a, I guess, a pride issue of, I know more than this person, I could be teaching. And I'm not saying, I, I don't think, like when I'm sitting in church, that is not what I think. Um, but but when I start thinking, why would, I can get all heated up about a misapplied verse mm-hmm. or, or a verse taken out of context. How do you um, stay teachable and humble and not be prideful about that when you have you may have more knowledge about a certain area because you have studied it more how do you how do you hold that and learn oh that's a great question so what i'm about to say sounds really arrogant and it probably is but you have to hear everything i'm about to say so i have a phd in new testament there's a, there's not a lot that i don't know i mean there is a lot that i don't know but there's a lot that i do know right so it's not too unusual if I go to church and the pastor preaches or a Sunday school class and the teacher teaches that I know more than they do and I might disagree with them on this or that. Here's what I do. I consciously decide that when I go to church, I'm going to tell myself, this person under the sovereignty of God has prepared a message in such a way that there are some things in it that God in his sovereignty intends for me to receive that I need. And so I'm going to go And I might hear things that I might disagree with, but I'm going to be looking and hunting for the things that I need to hear, things that give me joy, things that are shared from the Word that lead me to be convicted by the Spirit, and I'm going to act upon those things. And so, yeah, we have to be careful about being so arrogant that we say, I don't need anything this person has to say. I know more than he does. We have to avoid that, and I think one of the ways we do that is by hunting for the things that God has for us that day. Okay, so even preparing yourself the way you would, but preparing yourself, praying specifically that that God would help you hear those things, yeah, and and be conscious that that you are putting yourself under this person's that, teaching. That's what I do regularly. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor, he's with the Lord now, Norman Geisler, great philosopher, systematic theologian, apologist. And if ever there was a teacher I had that would fulfill the the description of earnestly contending for the faith, it was, you know, we used to jokingly call him Storm and Norman Geisler. <laughs> He was a great teacher. I took him for a bunch of courses. And even when I disagreed with him, I loved his classes because he just stretched you so much. Okay? One day, we had a chapel speaker who said some outrageously stupid things. And we got to class with Dr. Geisler and said, Doc, what, (laughs) what would you say about that message in chapel? He said, I learned some really good things. And this is Norman Geisler, you right. know, who knows everything. Right. right. Literally. Yeah. And he says, when I go to chapel, I, I say, what does the Spirit of God want me to learn here? And I turn off my criticism mm-hmm. and I open my heart. I'm like, if Geisler can do that, <laughs> right. what am I supposed to do? Yeah. 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 So, okay. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you. As a Moody Bible Institute graduate, I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Okay, last question is from Susan in Ohio. We're going to Isaiah 45 and 48. Um, She's reading Isaiah and came across the name Cyrus. And she's wondering, she said it, it looks like it might be a reference to Christ, but she wants to know who is this Cyrus referring to? Okay, now... I want you to listen to this very carefully, okay? This is an important lesson of who Cyrus is. Are we ready? Here's what Isaiah 45, verse 1. Ready? The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings, to open the doors before him, and the gates will not be shut. Who is this Cyrus? Are you ready? It's really technical. It's Cyrus. That's who it is. It's Cyrus. And the, the reason people get confused is he uses the word anointed or Mashiach, mm-hmm. which is the term for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But there's an anointed priest in the book of uh, Exodus. Uh, there, the word anointed is used in many ways. Kings were anointed. Uh, uh, priests were anointed. The word anointed just was a general sense of someone who... God separated for a special task. Uh, And what he did is he took the pagan king, Cyrus the Great, and even though he didn't even know God himself, God put his fingerprint on him and was going to use him to accomplish his purposes. That's why he's called the anointed one. But this term becomes so significant. But there are other terms too, the servants of the Lord, uh, the branch, others that come to be it comes to get a technical usage, I think it's only about nine times in the Old Testament, where it refers to the Messiah, Hamashiach, uh, the, like in Daniel 9 okay. would be one. So. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, thanks for bringing the mailbag in, Trisha. You're Always welcome. great talking with you. Okay. And thanks, Mike, for uh, reminding us how not to be such smart Alex. That's yeah. a really, really big big reminder for those of us who might know something got to listen anyway we're gonna be right back with more of your questions right here on a special edition of open line with the two michaels stay with us
Open Line. I'm so grateful that you're listening. Really appreciate all of you. In Psalm 122.6, the psalmist exhorted us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, a prayer we too often neglect. That's why Chosen People Ministries' new calendar is a great reminder to pray for Israel. This year's calendar will give us these glorious pictures of Israel and give us prayer prompters as well. Since the Jewish New Year actually begins in the fall, this calendar runs from September through December of 2024. For your free copy of Chosen People Ministries' Jewish Art Calendar, go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll all the way down. You'll see a link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. When you click on that, you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of the 2324 Jewish Art Calendar. Well, we're going to talk next with Louise in Mentor, Ohio. Uh, welcome to Open Line, Louise. How can I help you today? Yes. Um, I have a question about a niece of mine. Uh, she was saved from a very bad accident many years ago where her parents and her brother were killed in California. And she was thrown out on the hill, miraculously saved. So my mother brought her up, and uh, then my brother, who was a Scientologist, he got her involved in Scientology. And so she's now 72. I've been praying for her for over 50 years, uh, and I just wondered whether the prayers somewhere I read in, I think it was a tract, that the more prayers we have the more we get an answer, in other words, fervently praying. So I, so I have prayed for her for so long, and I think there's a verse somewhere in Revelation, I can't find it now, that said something about all the prayers of the saints going up. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I do think that the prayers of the saints in the tribulation period will ascend before God like incense. And I think that's in the tribulation. Yeah, that's what that's referring to. But I do think that we're supposed to persist in prayer. I just mentioned uh, Psalm one twenty two six about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But last hour I mentioned Romans ten one. Paul says, "My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved." It's the only verse in the Bible that discusses people mentions someone praying for a lost people. It's the only place. Only one verse. Where is it again? Romans ten one. It says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is they might be saved. It's the only place where you pray for someone to be saved. Now, my point of that is that one example gives us the right. It shows us that it is permissible and proper and right to keep praying for your niece. Now, the great thing to remember is God's a lot more patient than we are. We don't know even what will bring about this answer to prayer. You know, he doesn't always say yes, but he does desire that all people be saved. So you're praying in a way that fits with what his heart is for them, for this person. And so I would just say, keep on praying. Don't give up. It may not even be in your lifetime where God answers this prayer. And I was going to say that too. You know, uh, Louise, we we tend to think, well, when I die, I, I can't pray for them anymore. And so it's all over. But God might answer our prayers 30 years later, even after we die. He, he might still use our prayers in this mysterious way to do that. So keep praying, keep going, don't give up. 
um, trust the Lord in this, and who knows what he might do in her heart. Yeah. Thanks for your call, Louise. We're going to speak with Tony in West Chicago, listening on WMBI. Welcome to Open Line, Tony. How can I help you? Thank you. Um, thank you for the program. Uh, my question is about a friend who was a dear brother in the Lord for so many years and ultimately um, started listening to some liberal teachers and that turned him away from the Scripture. Um, and his, his basically his, his, his beef is that the Scripture uh, permits slavery, and that's not something that he's willing to sign on to. And so uh, since he's adopted that position, it's been extremely hard to talk to him about the faith because this, he doesn't really have yeah. well, faith l- in the Let me jump in here, Tony. Uh, just because we're running out of time, first of all, the Bible, I don't think, permits slavery but regulates slavery. It was such a common condition that it had to be regulated so that it was uh, less abused than it was. Secondly, biblical, the slavery in ancient times and what the Bible is talking about is a different kind of slavery than what we know of with American slavery, uh, for example. It was much more like uh, indentured servanthood. Uh, Most of the slavery that we see in the Bible is indentured servanthood, meaning it was like a a form of work uh, that was more harsh, but it was definitely not like owning a person is today. You were going to add something on that? Yeah, two passages, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 and 23. um, Were you called while a slave? Paul writes, do not worry about it, but if you're able to become free, rather do that. That's an imperative verb. It's a command. If you're a slave and you can be free, you should. And then in verse 23, you're bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. I'm here to tell you that's also a command verb. And so I think that sounds, and some other things, sound the death knell for slavery right in the Bible. Right. Well, that's the program for the week. Thanks for your call, Tony. Thanks for everyone who called for making the program possible. Thanks to my friend Mike V for joining me. Appreciate it what, so what much. Fun. Had a great time. And thanks to the whole crew here, Trisha, Courtney, Lynn, and even learning producer right here, Josie. We're glad for you being here. Uh, keep in touch with us by going to our webpage, openlineradio.org. It has all the links you need. Also, keep reading the Bible, and we'll talk about it next week. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, ministry of Moody Bible Institute. See you next week.